Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Welcome to 3, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. This is our U.S. Open recap show. Uh, We were all in New York, and uh, I believe we all witnessed the final match that Rafael Nadal played against Francis Tiafo. In, uh, in the fourth round, a four-set win for the American. We will uh, recap that, talk about Nadal's run in New York as a whole, and uh, some news items as it pertains to Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer as well that we will get to at the end of the show. Uh, but but kind of neat that we were all there. We also were together. Um, we did get together, the three of us, in person for the first time, <laughs> which was great. But anyway, uh, that Nadal-Tiafo match... Joel, how close do you feel Nadal was to the peak of his powers, his 2022 powers, let's say? Not nearly as close as he'd been at Roland Garros and Australia. I just think the lingering effects of the abdominal injury, even the lack of match play on hard courts, it was plaguing him throughout the tournament. And I think it really hurt him some uh, in, in the match against Tiafo, particularly when serving. Yeah. I thought I thought he had four things working against him. The injury which for which he had to change his service motion. Um, I believe he had nine double faults in that match against Tiafo, which is somewhat uncharacteristic. His wife, who is pregnant back in Spain, uh, reportedly having some issues, perhaps not significant, but his his thoughts were obviously there. Uh, he ran up against Tiafo, who that day was serving perhaps the best I've ever seen him serve. He was hitting his spots, and I saw any number of serves that were clocked up around 140 miles an hour. And then the, the quote that Rafa had after the match to me was telling. It said, to be able to play this sport at the very tippy top levels, I'm paraphrasing here you have to have the reflexes of youth. And I don't have that. I'm not young anymore. So uh, that was to me very telling because I don't actually agree with him. I mean, at some point, you know, your, your age is going to catch up with you, but I do believe he has the ability to play at elite levels. And he's shown us that this year, but to me, it was very telling about his belief right now and and the age i guess with any number of injuries that he's had or or maybe the fact that he's about to be a father for the first time i think the age thing is the elephant that is finally catching up to him and maybe messing with his belief a little bit that one's tough for me after he's been so successful right he was undefeated at majors the ab coming up at wimbledon and having to to withdraw from that match so I don't, I'm, I'm more in the camp of the first two things you said, 
Um, and, and Joel said that the ab injury, which really had me doubting when I saw videos and I, I picked Nadal on, on my show to, to win the tournament. But as soon as I got to site, I talked to some people and I watched some videos of Nadal in practice serving. I, I became a little bit skeptical because he did lower his toss. Uh, he, uh, didn't bend his knees as much, wasn't reaching up as high because he was trying to protect his stomach. And we know about how your serve bleeds into the rest of your game emotionally and mentally. And if you're not serving normally, it's difficult to get into that confident frame of mind, which Tiafo uh, certainly could attest to because he was serving the best of his life. There's no doubt, you know, going after it and in the Nadal match, especially landing it. And, um, and then, yeah, the other thing off the court with, with his, um, wife, uh, Maria is, is another thing that I think could have played a role. It was the fourth set specifically that surprised me guys, because look, Tiafo played a fantastic level, but the one thing Nadal always does is make the player who's never been in that position before earn every inch, especially at the end. And he didn't do that in the fourth set which was the most shocking part of the match to me. Well, that's probably when he made the age-related comments. And I think Amy put it right, though, the age now. And these folks, what we love about them is when they play, there's so much in the present. That's what makes sports compelling is it's such a present, mindful activity. So I think Nadal was saying where he was at very much in that moment. And that doesn't necessarily mean what it's going to mean in three months or six months or once he comes back to Paris. I also think the... Um, the lack of match play coming in. We talked about that in prior shows about how Nadal, all the years he's won the Open, he's usually played at least five matches on the North American hard courts before. And here he played one. And whether it means he's sharp or not, I mean, it's so interesting. This is the stuff that we talk about, but the dynamic of confidence is kind of the same at all levels. So this sense of Nadal thinking, haven't done enough work, not match tough enough. And, that, and then you add the abdominal injury and he's feeling hindered and vulnerable. Have you guys ever had this happen in a match or maybe even in life where you have something go your way, which really should not go your way and you feel guilty about it and that affects your performance? There were two things that happened in the match that did not go Tiafo's way. And, and I think it um, may have actually um, affected Nadal and really strengthened Tiafo's resolve. And the first thing was that um, Nadal as the returner uh, on set point asked Tiafo to wait, to hold. And it's, as we all know, the rule in tennis is server's pace. And um, he had to hold a serve for a, for a second. And then uh, he proceeded to double fault. So that was controversial. And then the other thing, this was bigger. Um, Tiafo was serving at a pivotal point in the match and the US Open decided to close the roof right in the middle of his service game. Not only does it affect the light, you know, and you're tossing the ball and you're reaching up, but there's also a noise. There's like a hum that happens. And Tiafo, one, certainly one of the nicest chill guys on tour, complained. 
he complained to the chair umpire. He protested not in a, you know, in a super argumentative way, but he did speak up and he just got no relief. And uh, I think those two things going against him um, might have given Nadal some pause and might have really strengthened the resolve of Tiafo. Yeah, that's a great point. I do say, though, yeah, I know the rule is service pace. The receiver has the right not to be quick served. The receiver has the right to say, hey, it's your pace, but not always that fast. And so was, it, right. was Nadal quick served in that situation, trying to be quick served? No, he wasn't trying to be quick served, but he has the right to set himself. You don't have to, you don't have to hurry up. It's not, it's not a bus. The server is not a bus. You have the right to say this. You have the right to say the server, oh, and then we're mutual. You don't have to just be, the server isn't the, the what do you call it, the Martinet, the, the symphony yeah. conductor. So you, don't, you can slow them down. However, I think your point is a great one. I don't think Nadal intended to do that and have it elicit a double fault. That was not necessarily. Yeah. And I don't what, think what did you think, Gil? So I don't remember that one. I don't remember that one. I do remember very well the roof because it was a clear momentum swinger. And I, di I didn't have much, I don't have much sympathy for, for Francis on that one because you have the right to stop playing. Like if, if you don't, if you want to wait for the roof to close and, and you want to stop playing, you're allowed. Um, and I've seen players play through the roof closing. They were obviously doing it because rain was, was coming into the area. And uh, yeah, there's a hum. There, there's a noise that it makes. I mean, you just... I'm sorry, like it happens. I, I, I thought the fact that that got in Tiafo's head as much as it did was uh, not something I really felt bad about for him. Um, the noise stuff, I'm glad you mentioned the noise part. It's funny, I hadn't been to, um, the last major I attended in person was the 2020 Australian and hadn't been to the US Open since 19. And I really came in contact with how the noise of the US Open is different from each, each major has its own noise vibe to it. So actually the noise, the roof is going on, but the noise around the US Open, particularly you go to that Armstrong court, that's just like being in an airport terminal. It's I not mean, quiet. It's not quiet. This, <laughs> that, that level of people are milling around all the time. And so there's interesting things. I hadn't realized that the player has the right to say, oh, you're closing the roof. I'll just take a little break here. So Francis agreed to, to carry on, but he was still, disturbed by it. And then Nadal was leading in the, um, in the fourth set. He's up three, one, I believe in the fourth set of that match. He was, he was. And again, that was the part of the match that shocked me. Nothing else really surprised me until the end of the fourth set where I was just really uh, surprised by how, by how Nadal went away. There was also at the end of the first set. And this is where I thought you were going with this, Amy. Nadal left the court and I'm still confused about what happened because the chair umpire, um, was it Nacho? Was it Carlos? I, I don't remember. It was Bernardes. It was Bernardes. Bernardes never told the crowd what this was about. But the break between the first and the second set was much longer than the time allowed. And uh, the, the thought is that there was medical personnel uh, with Rafa during that break. Uh, that, that's what was, what was relayed to me from people who had a better view of the tunnel uh, from the TV cameras. And I'm still confused about if there was medical treatment happening there or not. Hmm. Do, do either of you have any clarity on that? Because it was there was about eight minutes between the first, um, eight, 10 minutes between the first and the second set. 
I think I went to the bathroom during that time, so I might not have noticed it. I figured he went to change his kit because I was really, I mean, every time any of us see Rafa in person, we're amazed at how much he sweats. And it was hot that day, but it wasn't like sweltering. But I noticed after like the first three games, he was just pouring sweat and, and sweating through. So I thought for sure he's got to change his kit. But that's interesting that that there were medical personnel around. I mean, it makes sense. He's injured. I thought he had to change his kit too. And then again, it was way longer than what's allowed. Hmm. Um, and Bernardus just never said what's going on. Everybody on the broadcast with me on us open radio, uh, we were all confused. And I, 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 you know, I saw Bernardus into the walkie talkie, like all the time, couldn't hear what he was saying. Francis was asking what's going on. Uh, so I'm not sure. So I guess we should move on from that. Um, you know, the, the one thing is that we did see him kind of play himself into form, which is exactly what we talked about, right? Mm -hmm. We talked about it's, it's okay if Nadal is not going to be a hundred percent right away because he gets to play Rinky Hijikata. Uh, and then he, he gets to play his, uh, his pigeon Richard Gasquet with all love and respect in the third round and, and Fanini who completely went away mentally as he does as he does sometimes in the third and fourth sets, which Nadal won 6-2 and 6-1. So it was kind of all playing out in that way. I think a lot of credit goes to Francis because his level, as we saw as the tournament progressed and he beat Rublev in straights and he pushed Alcaraz to five, his level was really significantly disruptive. No question. No question. And I also think you know, Nadal coming into form None of those three matches prior to that were like, yeah, and here's Rafa. It's like, yeah, he's winning matches, but they're kind of built on this kind of, uh, what do you call it? Not quite exactly the, the bedrock of winning matches. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a, it's, it's Fanini, not Ferrer. It's Gasquet, not uh, Sanga or whoever. You know, it's, it's a, these, these are guys, oh yeah, Rafa. Okay, so it's not quite... The, the deep challenge and he's getting through these matches, but he, I mean, nothing after the first three matches led, led me to think, yeah, Rafa, you got it. I mean, it's looking really good. I thought he was just winning tennis matches, which is nice. And Tiafo, look, we, we, as we saw also in the, in the next round, this is a breakthrough slam for Tiafo. So his, his tennis went like this over the course of the U S open. So, and along the way he took out Nadal. that was just such a, such an impressive win, how aggressively he played and how well he executed and covering the court, everything. It, it happens with Rafa, it seems like a lot, where he loses a match to someone and, you know, you in the moment you think, ah, oh, why did that happen? And then it just turns out that that person has got a nice vein of form going. Like um, he lost to Chorich in Cincinnati, who... Yeah. ended up winning the tournament. I mean, it's, oh, maybe that wasn't such a bad loss after all. Um, you know, when I look back, I try to like zoom out and think about the, the year of four slams that Rafa has had. I mean, it was still amazing. And, and even in, there were moments in the Tiafo match where, you know, you, you think, well, he's still got it. I mean, he, he even injured and, and with these worries on his mind and earlier in the tournament, he had commented to his coach that he was feeling anxious. Even with that, he's still such an elite player. So we're going to have a situation 
that hasn't happened in about 30 years that happened frequently once upon a time. Nadal's going to end the year with two slams, more slams than any man, but he won't finish the year number one. So we're going to have this kind Why of Why did like, that used to happen more frequently? It used to happen. The whole computer took into account different ways of, of awarding points and the majors didn't quite have as many points. And there are all these different, I, I, there's it's almost like a calculus math thing. I mean, one year, 1977, Guillermo Vilas won two slams, even though one, the French, it wasn't the deepest field, but he won two slams, uh, finished number two. And Jimmy Connors, who didn't win any, finished number one. I'm not going to bore you with all the math, but it's just, it's, uh, Lenzel one year won one, Becker won two, Lenzel finishes one. And I think they finally took some corrections to that. But again, this year, Nadal's performance, the performance of others, the weighting of, of tournaments, you know, it's kind of the, the post-pandemic rankings world you know the the non-points at wimbledon yet we all agree that nadal cares much more about adding to his major oh, titles i don't think nadal i don't think nadal gives a rip that he won't finish number one on a computer i'm talking about from a understanding yeah. how the sport looks standpoints i mean in american baseball terms i guess it's a little bit like the guy who leads the league in batting average is not necessarily the mvp um would be a way to put it so who's Who's the player? Who's the player of 2022? The guy who finishes atop the computer or the guy who wins more majors? And it's an interesting thought. All right. Well, speaking of which, where does Nadal go from here? Uh, my inclination, no information, no inside sources, is that he will not play another match for the rest of the season. I think it's the year has been too difficult on, on his body. There's too many things he probably wants to get fully recovered and right for for Australia in January and he is um and his wife is due to give birth and there might be uh health complications there which I I'm not aware of any of the details or specifics nor do I really want to be it's their private life um so my um that's my inclination what do you think Amy Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Well, having just said that, Gil, do we know when she's due? <laughs> because that could affect, you know, he's committed to play the Labor Cup, which is the 22nd of September. But remember, that's not a full week. And it's, you know, it's quasi-exhibition and it's... um. It's I heard just, October. Okay, so if she's doing okay, I could see him hopping over to London and playing for a weekend in something that he's committed to. And it's it may be the last time that the big three get to play in, in an official capacity. Is that a real match, Labor Cup? And Roger is doubtful. Roger's doubtful for that? Haven't yes. we seen that? Yes, Roger's doubtful. Oh, I didn't see that. So, so Roger's doubtful. I think I, I concur with you, Gil, that um, Nadal, okay, I think the only thing, he, if he's going to play anything the rest of calendar 22, it'll be Labor Cup. Finito. 
Right. And, and to me, <laughs> to be completely honest with you, to me, that means not playing another match. Like, I don't, I, I okay. again, that feels like an <laughs> exhibition to me. Uh, too. Either way, either way, I think, I think the most we're going to see him play, I, I think, you know, and you know how I feel about predicting, but I think the tea leaves look like Nadal. It's hard to see him want to be chasing ranking points at indoor events in the balance of calendar 22, given all the things. And, and we don't even, and the abdominal injury was probably not as recovered as many had hoped. So here he is just mending his 36 year old paternal body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in hindsight, he probably came back too early. Now, he'd you know, maybe he'd do it again because, you know, you got to go out there and try your best. But if you have to alter your your service motion to protect an injury, it's uh, it's kind of bad news from the start. Um, how did we feel about like looking back? I mean, I I feel like it's been a great tournament. It's not over yet. Sviantec and, and Jabur are, are about to get going here and uh, the men's final is still to come. I mean, I, I a U.S. Open that felt very exciting, very big, lots of storylines. I mean, if Novak would have been there, I, it, it, I just I think about how much even better uh, it could have been. Well, yes, that's it would have been. It obviously would have been better to have Novak there, but I don't. I can't say that um, this hasn't been a great tournament. No, for sure. That's what I was kind of getting. I, at. I can't really say that I've been thinking about him too much because I've been too busy watching these extravaganzas. I agree. And I think, uh, of course, it would have been different and better to see someone as accomplished as Novak there. But look, look, we saw, and I think Alcaraz is most vivid, but Tiafo is pretty good too. We're seeing signs. There's a, there's a significant upgrade of power and movement going on in, in tennis across all levels. And it's very exciting to see of, of power and movement and styles and tactics, kind of like life after the big three and all the questions they posed, all the questions they posed that you got to solve and figure out and how to, how to do that and how to do it. It's Tiafo beating Nadal or, or Alcarez, who has what I consider the, uh, the poise of Nadal and sort of a, an arsenal like Federer of his own, not exactly Federer's, but his own. Wow, I got to learn a lot of shots. So there's a lot of in Jensen Brooksby, you know, further down the ranks, but other other players, Korich making his his way back. I mean, there's some interesting, a lot of things going on. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I think this this isn't surprising, but like we know that tennis is going to be okay after the big three. It goes in cycles. We're never going to hit. Tell me if you disagree, Joel. We're never going to hit a decade-long period where it's like, huh, no players, nobody's interesting, nobody's exciting. That's never going to happen. That can never have happened. And there's always, whenever, I remember this, when Borg and Connors and McEnroe, oh, oh no, what's going to happen? Yeah, players emerge. They People win. And then we anoint them. And then we wonder what makes them so great at winning. And then others, you know, Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi come along. And, and, and now that doesn't mean, I don't know if we're going to have 20 slam winners and all that. And, and nobody knows that. Nobody could have told that 20 years ago. Right. Gil, and I have a question for you. Just ahead. sort of out of the blue, since we're talking big picture stuff. Since you worked this US Open and you were there for some of these marathon matches, what is your thought on these matches going 
to 2 a.m., past 2 a.m. You were, you were there for the atmosphere. You were there to see exactly how many people were there. Yeah, great question. I've So first of all, I think that the players' voices are the most important here. I also think that getting a day off is significant. And when players have usually complained about this, you know, these late finishes, it, it has tended to be not at the majors. It's been at the tour level events where they literally don't get a day off. And, and that's where I think it can be very damaging for players to go late. Uh, however, we haven't really heard from players on this as much as we've heard from fans, uh, but mostly media. And it doesn't rub me the right way if media uh, is the, are the main primary voices critiquing the late finish because the, I think the dirty secret in probably all of sports, but tennis, especially because there's no clock is many people who are working in tennis are actually just rooting for the tennis to end so that they can stop working. It's a very well, that, dirty secret. That's every sport as someone who used to cover major <laughs> league baseball. I mean, if you guys could see the scenes when a, a game that was already running long and late would go to extra innings, people would take things off their desks and just chuck them at the <laughs> wall. I mean, there would be tears cried over this. That's that truly is any sport. And that just lets people know that you think that it would be a dream job working in, in sports media, but it, it becomes just a job like, like everything else does. But, um, you know, I, there's the media and then there's the rights holder and the rights holder in this case is ESPN. And I was interested to know, like, is this ideal for ESPN? Did they want these because of, you know, East Coast and East Coast will go to bed and, and even West Coast will go to bed. And um, I did ask an executive and that person said, it's not ideal, believe it or not, because it's not prime time anymore. Once you get past midnight Eastern, it's not prime time. And you're really starting to have a diminishment in the potential of the number of eyes that could be on the sport. Yeah, this is some very good dialogue. And I saw some of the things, in fact, you put out a tweet, Amy, that suggested that the day sessions start at nine and maybe the evening start at six. And I wonder about that too. I mean, I've had my share of, uh, you know, 2.30 a.m. depart finishes. And, and that means if you're working, if you're writing, you, know, you still got to go to press conference and write and leaving at four. And it, and it creates, you know, 48 hours of, of, of physical anguish, it's sleeping, all this stuff. And, but like you said, that's where people are working it. For the fans who go, it's kind of novel. I guess they'll figure out their work the next day if they have work or whatever. But uh, I still wonder, boy, our, sport, our sports showcasing itself showcasing itself at um, one in the morning, two in the morning. I mean, I think of American football. Do I want to see the AFC championship at that hour? So I don't know quite what the answer is. Or is this just a couple of times a year in the city that never sleeps and part of the New York thing that it happens, uh, you know, four matches a year? Right. Well, okay. So being in the building for Center Alcaraz, the energy was incredible everyone who was there i think has a memory for life they cherished it they enjoyed it they were into it that said ash was was uh, sparse you know not a lot of people were there everyone who was there was just so so into it um 
yeah, I think the novelty is there. I think the problem with the U.S. Open is not that this happens once in a while. It's that it's kind of set up to happen often. So, and it also feels kind of silly to have no matches on Ash for oftentimes two to three hours if if we're going to, uh, you know, play till 2 a.m., right? Like, just why not start at 6 p.m. Eastern time? Why not start at five? So I would be, you know, wide open to that adjustment happening. If it's better for TV, let's do it. Change it all <laughs> for it. It's just, I'm a little bit weary of, um, <laughs> I'm, I just want to be careful that it's not like, oh, like poor us, we have to stay up, uh, you know, and, and it's like a, a couple of uh, journalists are the main voices that are, that are taking center stage against this. That's that's, that's right. the case for the people that are arguing best of three over best of five in slams. I really do sense a little bit of it would be better for me if the slams were best of three. Personally, I don't feel that way. I want to stick with best of five in slams. You wanted best of five for the woman, as I recall. Yeah. yeah. So what time does the, okay, I just want to have some little fun with this. If, if the tennis starts at 9 a.m. under the current format with the woman playing two out of three, and the men are, if the women are playing best of five at the slam and the men are playing best of five at the slam, what time does the tennis or or is it like a 7-Eleven around the clock, 24 hours? Before you get me in trouble, Joel, recall that I wanted to extend the length of the tournament beyond two weeks. I wanted to start it a little bit earlier and end it a little bit later. I also wanted to, I'm sorry, curtail doubles a little bit and shrink the doubles field. I mean, it was part of a grand plan. <laughs> I know, I got the, you got the whiteboard in the other part of your house. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, that's okay. So I get it, like uh, more more days for the tournaments, more more spread out, that's fine. But uh, yes, yeah, so I think the, the late nights, um, that's right, for the fan, it's a memorable experience. And so yeah, yeah if, you, if you're working five, eight, 12 straight days, that's a different thing, but that's not the point. It's a little bit the way I felt when um, when Wimbledon began to play on the middle Sunday. Working there, it was really neat. Attending there, no question you have tennis on the middle Sunday so that more people can attend it. And when people say, oh, this is being done for TV, no, it's being done for the fans. Because let's face it, 99% of the people who watch tennis watch it on television, not the people yeah. who are attending. So and tennis? Yeah, go on. Tennis needs to get with the times and start prioritizing television because that's how sports works in the 21st century. Well, TV has, is king. It, it has, it, it has, it has for 50 years in certain okay. ways. This, I mean, don't think it didn't in other years when, when us open finals were starting after the NFL football ended. I mean, you know, there are lots of things. It's just what the contemporary world looks like and what the contemporary viewer looks like. Yeah. Men's final goes up against football now, which is another area for discussion. But, you know, the U.S. Open also, you know, it's unique. And the argument, this would never happen at Wimbledon. Well, heck yeah, this wouldn't happen at Wimbledon. Wimbledon also doesn't put fans chugging beers up on the Jumbotron on Armstrong. Okay, but the U.S. Open does. It's different. So there you have it. <laughs> And any right. number of other things that I saw. Part of the mix, and I. But I do think I do think that um, the USTA is probably going to at least give that some thought because of of that stuff. But maybe it's 
starting early or maybe it's earlier. One thing that was done, for example, in recent years, there are only two matches on Ash by day. Once upon a time, there were three and that created a lot of clutter between day and night. That almost happened uh, the day Nadal lost to Tiafo. If Nadal, the Nadal-Tiafo match goes to five sets, that backs right up against the night session because the roof had been, there'd been an hour delay on the prior women's match because the roof was being closed from the rain. That was the, the match that preceded the Nadal-Tiafo match. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so, I, yeah, they, they got to go to the players, I think, and, and see if Well, the players, but you know, it's funny. I agree that the players are very important, but it's kind of a circle too. It's the fans. It's lots of I other, mean, it's lots of I other agree. people. You know, I mean, I, I think agree. some sport thinks it's too much all about the players. And then you have situations where players don't do things that exist in other sports. Sure. All right. Yeah. I mean, we didn't even talk about coaching and we're not gonna, because we've been going too long. Let's end on, uh, on Roger Federer. Um, Joel, I know you saw that news, you know, just reports that, that there's been, um, some unexpected issues with, with the knee in terms of this timetable, uh, remaining, um, on track for labor cup and perhaps, uh, Basel, uh, what did you make of, of this? Because I mean, I don't know, overall, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm not concerned. It just feels like with this particular knee for Federer in the last couple of years, it, it has never really been on time. No, it's interesting, boy. And someone as efficient and elegant as Roger Federer, even, even his body, even his body has things happen to it. And I guess we're going to just have to see. And I think he's more important. He's thinking, he's weighing things. He's thinking, okay, let's Australia or sometime in 2023, or even Wimbledon. Labor Cup is going to be Labor Cup. Labor Cup last year happened without him playing in it, and we're just going to see how that continues. I don't think Federer is going to sweat missing out on playing Labor Cup. Well, I didn't even know about this, guys. I've been so dialed into the U.S. Open, and I'm realizing that a friend of mine who's a huge Federer fan texted me a couple days ago, just a crying emoji and i didn't have time to say what 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 are you talking about i realize it must be the federer news so um in a way it could be good because if federer were going to play the labor labor cup and just retire he might put himself in there for doubles you know hop around take some shots and then just take his bow and call it good but the fact that he wants to be more measured in his return may actually be a good sign that being said the video that he posted on instagram it was about two or three weeks ago it did not look good to me he was favoring the knee or not favoring the knee anyone who has um come to this familiarity that we have with the way he hits the forehand would be able to tell you that's not how he hits the forehand. So I'm surprised he posted that video, but I guess he did it maybe to temper expectations. That's a great point. Temper expectations. Perfect. I, uh, I never thought that Federer would have Labor Cup be his retirement. I've never thought that. I've always thought it would be somewhere like a Basel or a Wimbledon or something like that that would be the place to do it, not, and besides Labor Cup, even when he announced his retirement from ATP singles play, I think he'll be able to play doubles at the Labor Cup till he's about 50, mm-hmm. 55, no ad scoring, indoor courts. Good point. Lots yeah, I agree, I agree. And and you guys know, I think I think he'll put on his own retirement tour under teammate 
all around the world. Hmm. Um, so not there yet. Hoping for, hoping for, uh, uh, some, some good news out of, uh, the Federer camp soon to, to your point, Amy, that the story did kind of go under the radar. It wasn't, uh, reported in, in really, uh, at least originally reported in English news sources. It was Swiss news sources, which may have contributed to it. And then also the timing second week of the U.S. Open when the tennis world has uh, a lot of different stuff to focus on. So um, Alcaraz, Rude in the men's finals, Fiontech, uh, Jabur in the women's. And uh, we will get together um, very soon to discuss what's next for Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. But that'll do it for this episode of three remember we're available on all podcast platforms rate and review on apple please it's a big help and we will see you next time